Well, good morning. We are excited to be here this morning. I hope that you're excited to be here this morning as we worship together. We, uh, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of that passage this morning. Um, and as we come to Romans 8, uh, I feel incredibly inadequate for this passage. All of God's Word is inspired. All of it is profitable. All of it is worthy of our devotion and our study and of our uh, memorization, of putting it into our heart. But Romans 8 maybe stands out from the rest just a little bit. If there is any passage worthy of your time and your consideration every day, I would put forth to you Romans chapter 8 because it beautifully outlines for us what Christ has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do for the believer and gives us the power by which that we can follow him. And so this morning, we are going to look at chapter 8. We're going to do verses 1 through 17 this morning. And so if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your graces and for your mercies, Lord, that you pour out on us every day for the blessings, for your presence. And Lord, we pray that this morning that your presence would be clear and tangible, that your spirit would be among us in a fresh way that we may not just hear these words of chapter 8, but that they may penetrate our minds and our hearts, that we may go from this place differently, having a confidence that comes not from ourselves or from the flesh, but a confidence that comes from you. Father, we pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Romans at chapter 8 truly is an amazing passage. We could literally spend weeks and months probably just in this passage when you read words like, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's exciting stuff. You go down and see if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he, raised, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's exciting stuff. We go on to say that we are not debtors. Not, there's not anything that we owe anymore to anyone. We go into Christ, that we are adopted, that we don't have a spirit of fear any longer. But now that we can, now we come to God and can cry out with great confidence, the, the same confidence that a toddler has when they throw their arms up into the air and cry, Father, Daddy. Like we could spend a whole week just on that. And we've only gotten through verse 17. We could spend weeks just on this passage. There's so much depth here. There's so much great, uh, just exciting theology and, and life-changing promises that are contained in just these few verses. And we're going to try to get all of it in one day. But I pray that this week, that you, this past week, if you've been reading with us in our reading plan and the weeks to come, as we, as we kind of slow down a little bit from the breakneck pace we have been doing through Romans, that you would really, really read Romans 8. That you would allow God to sink deep into your heart the truth of his mercy and his grace, of the freedom that you have in Christ, of the spirit who dwells in you, of the confidence you can have in walking with him, of the great promises that lie ahead. I pray this week that you would take the time to do that and do that well. Of course, Chapter 8, like all of the chapters in Romans, is best understood and given more gravity when we understand what has come before it. And so, uh, as has been the custom, and as you can probably expect, um, it's good for us to go back and look quickly at what has come before this. In Romans chapter 1, again, we have the theme of the entire book. 
Um, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it is in, it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he starts off with that thesis and then he begins to run in chapters 1 through 5 just supporting that main idea. He begins in chapters one by and one and two by explaining that we have all sinned. We are all we have all broken the law of God. There's not a single human being that has ever been born who uh, can say I am innocent perfectly. That I have never disobeyed my parents. I've never lied. I've never coveted. I've never been jealous. There's simply no one that can say that. And because of that, then we are justly convicted and rightly sentenced. Paul, in the, in the beginning of Romans, paints this picture of a courtroom where we stand before a holy, perfect, righteous judge. And when he looks at us and he knowing, knowing all, he declares us guilty. And that is justice. That is perfect justice for us to be declared guilty. But it's not just that we are declared guilty, but that we are also rightly sentenced. Just as in our land that uh, the law not only tells you not to go over uh, 55 on certain speedways, in the same, and then if you do go over 55, here are the increasing fines, depending on how fast you are going over. In the same way, the law of God says, here is what, how you are to live life, and if you do not live life, in such a way, then the result, the consequence, the conviction is death. And it's not simply death of the body, but it is death when the soul is separated from God. This week, I don't know why this has stuck with me so much this week as, as I've studied through Romans chapter 8, but it has stuck with me, or it, what keeps coming to my mind is what Jesus says in the Gospels when he says that the rain comes to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. No matter who you are, no matter who you are, whether you embrace the fullness of who Jesus Christ is and follow him with all your life, or whether you denounce God and say that he doesn't exist, that there is no God, you would not believe the ways that God blesses you. The air that he puts in your lungs, the rain, relationships, music, entertainment, food, water, health, creation, the myriad of ways that God blesses even those who deny him is mind-boggling. We would never, think about this for a minute, we would never show that kind of generosity for someone that denounced us. And yet he does it over and over and over again. But friend, there will come a day when you stand before a holy God and if you have denounced him your life, then he will give you what you desire and he will completely withdraw and what you will find is that is literally hell. When he, when he removes his entire hand of blessing, when he removes his hand that has protected you from other things, 
and you receive the reward that you have both asked for and earned. It's a grim picture, chapters 1 and 2 and most of chapter 3. It's a heavy picture. Rightfully, it, it even disturbs us to a certain extent. But Paul wants us to understand this is the situation that we find ourselves in. Unable to save ourselves from our own actions and the sentence that we have rightly earned. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, but now. And everything changes. But now, Christ has come. He has died on the cross that he would pay for your sin, for your mistakes, that he would pay your sentence for your sentence he would fill in for you so to speak and if we place our faith and trust in him then what we find is that we are justified we go from being guilty to being innocent in the eyes of a holy god because the law has been fulfilled the law has been accomplished including the penalty of the law And Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 5 to rejoice in this new position that we have. That now, no longer are we guilty, now we are innocent. No longer are we unrighteous, now we are righteous. Now no longer are we enemies of God, now we are at peace with God. Now we are secure in, in the Um, unmerited favor of God. We rejoice in the things that are to come, in the, the promise of heaven that is assured, and we can rejoice in the here and now, even in our suffering, Paul says. And so, Paul is marveling. We have gone through this uh, entire kind of circle. Paul is marveling at this turnaround that we have gone from being in this grim, dire position to now being in this position of great hope and great glory. And so he goes on in chapter 6 to say, friend, that's just the beginning That when God justifies you, when he declares you innocent because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that's just the start of what he wants to do in your life. That there is a maturing that he he desires to happen to make us look more like Christ. To make us, to grow us into the glory of God. And it's something that it, takes an entire lifetime. God is continually working on us in this process that the word calls sanctification. More and more transforming us into the image of Christ. Paul says this is possible because we are, as he says in chapter 6, free from sin. No longer are we shackled by those sins of old. No longer are we shackled by those addictions and and the, the, the desires and the lust of our old life. Now we are free from those things. Free to live differently. We're free from the law. No longer does the law have dominion over us. No longer can the law say, well, you owe this. No, that has been taken care of. And we are free, sorry, we are free to serve Christ. And so Paul continues that line of thinking in chapter 8. He continues that line of thinking in chapter 8. He goes back in chapter 8, 
starting in verse 1, to say there is therefore, because of all of this, because of all of the review that we have just done, because Christ has paid with his blood your penalty, because he rose again and, and, and the power of the Spirit to see the resurrection happen and the promise that is assured because of that, because we are free from sin, because we are free from the law, because now we serve Christ, because of that, Because of that whole picture, there is no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. No condemnation. You understand that? There is no longer anyone that can accuse you. When we stand before the glory of heaven and that holy judge, there is not one who can stand and say, they deserve death because of this. Because the answer time and again is no, because of the cross. Because of the cross. They can stand and they can say, well, Brian was this and Brian was that. And I can say, the cross. It is everything. There is none that can accuse you. The world can say what they want. I'm not sure why my voice just cracked right there. But the world can say what they want. The world can say that he was this or that. They can take your reputation and they can drag it through the, through the mud all they want. It matters not because of the cross. There is no condemnation through sin any more because of what he has done. Not only that, there is no debt that you owe. There is no debt that you owe. The law, the law, or sorry, in verse 2 it says, the law of the spirit of, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Going down a little bit farther to verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is saying there, the law has been taken care of. No longer does the law stand over you and say, you owe this penalty. There is no bench warrant out for your arrest for an unpaid speeding ticket, though I understand that a speeding ticket and sin are not on the same level. But there's nothing out there for you to take care of because the cross took care of it all. It covered it all. The blood of Christ was sufficient. It's why we can stand in awe when we read those words of Jesus on the cross and he says, it is finished. There is no more payment to be made. There is no more debt that is owed. So we can take confidence in this. There's no one that can accuse us. There is no debt that we owe. No payment to be made because it's all already been taken care of. Therefore, there is no longer a death to fear. There's no longer a death to fear. Again, going back to verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit has set us of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Going down a little bit farther, it says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So the Word of God explains to us that not only 
Do we no longer have anyone accusing us? No longer do we not owe a debt any longer to the law. But now we even, because of Christ and his resurrection, we can even look at death and go, I have no fear. I have no fear. Death changes. Our view of death, and we're going to talk about this more here in just a moment. Our view of death changes. We can be like Paul who says in one of his other letters, death, where is your sting? Because the penalty of death is no longer. Now, death is a, merely a doorway for the believer into the glory of God. This is a remarkable thing. But here's, here's the thing. If that is all true, if we have removed all of that, We've removed the accuser. We've removed the debt collector. We've removed the fear of death. Then now what? Now where do we go? You see, when we remove all of those things from our life, there is a void, so to speak. And it's going to be filled by something. I don't know about you, but I, I know I experience this. When I give up one thing then something else comes along to take its place unless I make a conscious decision to do that. A perfect example. I've already cleared this and gotten permission to share this, so don't throw tomatoes at me, okay? But our sister, Debbie, has done a remarkable thing in that she has given up smoking. We're super excited about that. That's an amen and an amen, right? We're excited about that. However, she has a new addiction, and that is suckers. One addiction has replaced the other, right? And that's okay. We're, we're still excited about that. But the same thing happens in our lives, that we remove sin, we remove all these other things out of our life, but the world is ready and waiting to replace it with something unless we replace it with him. Unless we replace it with him. Paul does not merely say, you have gotten rid of all of that to have this void. No, you have gotten rid of all of that and Christ has placed in you now the Spirit of God that you may follow Him. And so we continue on here. He says, for the mindset, going back to verse 6 we read just a second ago, for the mindset on, for, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. There's something that is put in us that takes the place of everything that had been there before. Going, and we see what it is when we go back to John. We read this with the kids just a moment ago. John chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples moments or hours before he is arrested and then crucified. And he says this. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then skipping down to 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So Jesus says in John, 
There is the, you are not going to be alone. There's not going to be this void. But rather, I'm going to give you the Spirit of God who is going to dwell in you and with you to guide and to show you the way. We need that because we are babies in the faith. We need a guide. We need someone to help us to walk us through this life that we've been called through. And the Spirit does that in several ways. First, in the Spirit, we think differently. One more time, I'm going to take you to verse 6. It says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So when we fill, when we are filled with the Spirit to live differently, part of that is to think differently. Our minds no longer are focused on the things of the world and how the world wants to think about them and how the world prioritizes them. But now our minds are made different in the Spirit so that we have the priorities of the, our Father in heaven. Give you an example of this. Um, when you live in, for any amount of time in another country, you begin to observe things um, that are different between the culture that you grew up in and the culture that you now live in. Uh, when I was growing up, um, we were a family of lists. Every morning, I would have a list on the table, especially in the summers when we didn't have school. Dad would have a list on the table, and I was expected to have that list done by the time he got home. Sometimes that list was good. Sometimes that list was weeding the garden, okay? So you had these two, uh, so we were list people. And even as, a, as an adult, when I, began, when I started working at HLG, I would make a list at the beginning of the week, and it would be like, here's my daily list, here's my weekly list, here's my semester list. And my, my uh, perception of myself even was what I, I am valued by what I accomplish, what I get done in the day. And people would ask, how did your day go? And, how, and I would answer, well, I got this done, and I got this done, and I got this done, and my list is complete, and I would feel good. Or I would say, well, I got this done, but I missed out on these four things, therefore I'm a failure in life. And then I moved to Madagascar, and I was in a completely different culture, and I had to adapt a different mindset where now it's not about, the, the question is not what did you get done today, it's who you talked to today. Who did you talk to today? And now the priorities are shifted. And now it's not about the task. Now it's about the person. And so you go to the bank. And the bank teller, you want to just simply deposit money. Something that here we do on our phone in 30 seconds. And before phones we did in like three minutes when we went to the teller. You would go to do that in Madagascar. And if it took you an hour, you felt fortunate. Because they would want to talk. It wasn't merely a transaction. There was a personal thing that happened between you and the bank employee. And you were expected to talk to them and to, to explain what was going on in your life. And they would do the same. And you just accepted that. That was normal. And you, it didn't matter what was on your list for that day. If someone called and said, could we have coffee or could I come by the house? And normally they didn't call. Normally they just showed up at your front door. Then you just did that. And what I found was that over time, my mind and my actions both began to change where people became before the list. And I, but I find now that I'm back here, that's short, that shifts, right? We get back into the list making. It's the culture that we're in because our minds get changed. In the same way, in the same way, 
we have gone from one culture to the next. We have gone from the culture of the world that says these are your priorities, these are the things that you should think are important, to the culture of God. And he says, he turns everything upside down. He says, no, this is what's important, and this is what you should be doing. Paul says, in, Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 12 that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It starts here. God begins to help us to process things differently, to have different priorities. And then because we think differently, we begin to act differently. When I first got to Madagascar, my boss would call me and go, what did you get accomplished today? And I'd be like, well, I was a complete failure. And I would get frustrated and, and I would do, like there was a time in Madagascar that I would like literally try to avoid as many people as possible because I knew that if I saw someone, they would want to talk and then I wouldn't get anything done that day. But as my mind began to change, I began to see the importance in this culture of talking and visiting with people. Then I began to walk everywhere and I began to, to seek people out and to welcome them more because I understood that that was what was important and that was what was going to get things accomplished. And I've, you know, I've got several stories that we don't have time for this morning of things that, have ha that happened in Madagascar that would have been vastly different if I wouldn't have put people first beforehand. In the same way, in our Christian lives, when we begin to think differently, then we're going to become, be, begin to act differently. We're going to begin to seek out different things. We're going to begin to put prior, our priorities in a different order. And when that happens, what we're going to see is God show up in our lives more and more and more because those things are looking and acting, because we are thinking and acting differently. And again, as we think differently and as we act differently, then we look at death differently. Going back to kind of the point that he made before, but he makes it again in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Oh, sorry, I got the wrong one there. 11. For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Not only do we act differently, but we, we come to the point where our mind is so transformed and our actions are so transformed that we approach death differently to the point that we get to where Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 when he says that to, uh, well, we'll just turn there. It'll be much easier for me to quote it for you. But he says there in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. To, to be here is to do that which God has called me to do and to serve him well. But if I die, that is not a tragedy. Rather, it is something to be celebrated because it ushers me into the presence of my king. And so we, everything changes when you begin to see death differently, then you've begun to see everything differently. This is what happens when we replace the world and the, the death that we found there, the, the condemnation that we found there, the guilt that we found there, the debt that we owed, when we replace that with what Christ gives us, the freedom and the peace and the confidence that he desires for us. So what then? So what then? If having the Spirit, then where do we go from here? He starts in verse 12. So then, brothers, 
We are debtors. Because we, Christ has done all this for us, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, it's an interesting phrase here there. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He doesn't actually complete that thought process all the way through. He doesn't ever actually tell us who we are debtors to. But the, in the, what he is implying there is clear. That though we are not debtors to the world, though the law cannot say that we owe, them any, that we owe it anything, we do now turn to Christ and understand what he has done for us. And so Paul, but Paul doesn't continue that thought. In fact, he gets sidetracked. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if the Spirit is part of us, then we are to leave this world behind. Let me read that part again. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of this body, you will live. So if we are going to replace the world with the Spirit, then we have to consider all of those things dead. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about baptism, that that's what it symbolizes, that we have died to the world and now we live for Christ. We leave those things behind. But here's the thing. That process of leaving behind this world, of putting those things to death, it's not a painless process. When you put something to death, it's not a painless process. When you go in and remove that sin nature from yourself, it's not a painless process. This is why Paul says at the end of the passage in verse 17, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does he mean by that when he says that we are to suffer with him? Well, you think about why did Christ suffer in the first place? Christ suffered in the first place that sin would be defeated and dead. So if we are to suffer like him, if we are to suffer with him, then we will go through moments whereas we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ that God cuts away things in our life that should not be there. And there are times that that's going to be hard. There are times that that's going to be even painful as God weans us off of the world so that we may enjoy the meat of the Spirit. But so often, we don't want that. We think that hard things are worthy of being avoided. We think that things that are painful are things to be avoided at all cost, rather than to see them as beneficial to our lives. And yet, when we read this text and others, what we find is if we are not experiencing suffering, if we are not experiencing something at different points in our life, not that we experience it 100% all the time, that there's questions to be asked about who we are following. Now, this doesn't mean that we go looking for suffering. Doesn't mean that we search it out. Doesn't mean that we ask for it. Doesn't mean we're reckless with our life. But it does mean that we 
look at that differently. That when it does come into our life, our first reaction is not, woe is me. It's, Father, use this for your glory and for my benefit. Use this tribulation, use this suffering as a scalpel in your hand to remove something that shouldn't be there. By the way, that is not something that a baby says. That is a maturity in the faith that takes place in order for that to happen. A baby does not understand why you have to get the splinter out of their hand. Have you ever tried? Well, most of you are probably going to say yes to this, but have you ever tried to take the splinter out of a baby's hand? It's impossible. Like, I've never known the strength that is available in a two-year-old until you try to do something like that. You swear that somehow they've been like, I don't know, something has gone into them and now they have the strength of Hercules when you're trying to remove this splinter and they don't understand why it's painful. They don't understand why we have to go through this and they certainly don't understand all the ointment and everything that goes on afterwards. And it's only when you're an adult, when you're mature, that you see that splinter in your hand and you're like, hey, I, we got to get this out because otherwise it's going to get infected and it's going to do bad things. So we got to remove this thing, right? But that's a maturing that has to happen. In the same way, when we think about suffering, understand that it takes time for us as Christians to get to the point where we can say in the midst of the the storm, Father, use this. That's the thing that happens when the Spirit transforms our mind. We begin to look at everything differently. But anyway, we leave this world behind. We leave the world behind. And we grab hold of our Father. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By the way, that Abba, Father, there's another spot that that gets used. It's when Jesus Christ is in the garden praying. He says, Abba, Father. He cries out to God. He says, if this cup can pass from me, then please. But not my will, your will. We use the same words as Jesus Christ to cry out to our Father in heaven and pray, Father, do in me your will. Father, transform me. Father, hear my cries. And we can be assured that he does just that. James, James chapter 1, verse 16 through 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. By the way, just a side note, have you ever thought about why James says that, why he calls him the Father of lights? Because light is the first thing that he created. And so the first blessing to creation is light. He says, from the Father of lights, from the one that was from the very beginning, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I grew up, I grew up with a great dad. You've you've heard me say that before. I grew up with a great dad. He wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I grew up with a great dad. And so when I hear God talked about in terms of a father who is good, that's easy for me to understand. 
But in a room this size, I understand that, unfortunately, there were some of you that didn't have great dads. And certainly, I had friends growing up that I can remember we would, we would go to their house to hang out or something, and you didn't know how that gentleman was going to react. You didn't know how his day at work was going to impact his attitude. You didn't know, sadly, how much he had ingested of whatever and how that was going to change how he reacted. You just didn't know. And so you walked into that house carefully and cautiously because it was changing. Sometimes you would walk in and and that dad would be all gung-ho and, and excited to see not only his son but his friends and offer to take us to go get ice cream. Sometimes you would walk in and you were dodging stuff that was getting thrown at you. You don't know. But James says, when we come to this father, this perfect father who desires what is good for us, who gives perfect gifts, he is unchanging. He is unwavering. There is no shadow of change in him at any time. That when you come to him, that you can come to him in confidence that who he was yesterday and the day before and the day before that is who he is today and tomorrow and forevermore. And that is the lover of of your soul, the good Father who desires good things for you, which means that we can look forward to our inheritance. We can look forward to our inheritance. He says there that we are heirs with Christ, heirs with Christ. We are not merely servants that come into the kingdom of God. We are sons and daughters of the king. And so we look forward to that inheritance. We look forward to the, all of heaven. We look forward to even better, a new creation, a new earth that is perfect the way that it was intended to be. We look forward to all of those things. You probably heard the saying, it's good to be king. And there's some truth to that, certainly, as we think about that idea that, you know, if you're a king, then everyone listens to you and everybody does what you ask them to do and all the riches that go with it. But as I was thinking about Romans chapter 8 this week, I was thinking, you know, he's the king and we are princesses and princesses, princes and princesses, heirs to the kingdom. You know, how much better is that? Because if you're king, if you're a good king at least, the responsibility of the people is upon your shoulders. The weight of their, of their well-being is placed upon you. The prince, the princess, not a care in the world. Just gets to enjoy dad's position, right? Guess what? Welcome to the family. God, our king, took the weight of our well-being on his shoulders on the cross, and he took care of it all. And now he invites us as adopted sons and daughters to enjoy his position as king in the kingdom. 
to enjoy the riches of our inheritance. What do we see there? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on the other side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and the servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is our inheritance. That is what we look forward to with the confidence that only comes from Him. Brother or sister, I ask you this morning do you have the confidence of the Spirit? to know that he dwells in you, to know that you are son and daughter of God, and are you allowing him to transform your mind and your actions so that you look more like him? Or are you stuck trying to reach back for what the world has? Friend, are you here this morning and you do not have that hope? That we speak of, that when we talk about looking at death differently, when we talk about the promises and the inheritances, that you would say, I don't know what that is. I know that I don't have the Spirit. I know that I'm not following Him. I'm still running my own show. But I'm finding that more and more difficult. Would you come to Him this morning? Would you confess that you need Him? Would you believe that He paid the price for you on the cross? And would you commit to follow Him for the rest of your life? then this morning you too can know what it means to be a son or daughter in the kingdom. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have a time of response this morning. Maybe this morning you just need to sing worship over what God has done, and that is good and right. Maybe this morning you need to find someone and and talk with them. Maybe you need to, to come find me and say, hey, I want to follow Christ. I need help to know how to do that. Maybe this morning you need to come to the altar. This morning, you respond as God would lead. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, I pray that we would, Lord, that we would hear the words of Romans 8, and we would go back and study them and ponder them. And Lord, Lord, that we would become excited about who you are and what you've done in our lives. Lord, that the change that you've made to bring us from from guilty to innocence, Lord, the change that you've made that we no longer fear death, Lord, that now we look at it as merely a doorway into your glory, Lord, that no longer are we your your enemies, but now we are your sons and daughters able to enjoy the riches of heaven, 
to enjoy your presence in our lives, to, to see everything differently. Or that we would desire to, to rejoice in that and, and rest in that and have the confidence of that, to go out and to proclaim it to others and to share with them the difference that you've made in our lives, that you are making in our lives. Father, I pray, Lord, as we, we approach Easter season in the next month or so, that we, would, that we would just fall in love with you, that we would understand the depths of what you've done for us and that the joy of our salvation would be evident in our thoughts, in our actions, in our speech. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.